Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Yeah, so welcome to our Wednesday night sits um, that we're doing throughout the summer. It's an Inside LA sit. We have them on Sundays and Wednesdays, yeah, throughout the summer for a couple months. So I thought we would start today and talk a little bit about uh, intention as part of the Eightfold Path, Right Intention. And also, too, because Wednesdays are smaller and have an opportunity to, um, a little bit longer opportunity for practice questions or Q&A, because we don't really get to do that at all on, um, on Sundays. So any practice questions is fun, too. So on Wednesdays, I've been chatting a, a bit about kind of the, the system of of Buddhism, I think in today's time where um, mindfulness is so prevalent and mindfulness has been taught, uh, well, yeah, mindfulness has been plucked out and become mainstream, but for 2,500 years, you know, it's been taught as part of a grand system. And sometimes we could wonder why. Maybe mindfulness isn't working, or there's not motivation to practice, or things like this. And some of that, the reason for that, is that being that it's not taught all together. So these Wednesday night classes, I'm, <coughs> I'm talking a little bit about the foundational uh, practices of Buddhism, Four Noble Truths, uh, Eightfold Path, Brahma Viharas, aspects of the heart, um, things like that. Nice. (laughs) So when we practice, for example, sila or the ethics, this is a big, big piece. So we can't practice mindfulness without right speech. It's impossible to practice right mindfulness. Now we could be mindful of our wrong speech, (laughs) but we cannot become absorbed if we're not practicing right speech throughout the day, for example. We cannot be absorbed. We can't meditate at the end of the day after arguing all day. It just doesn't really work, yeah? And with mindfulness, though, we could be mindful of our speech, yeah? So we could use mindfulness. This is a theme, and this is why it's so popular, is that throughout the Eightfold Path, for example, mindfulness is a theme that we could use to support all the other elements. Right livelihood, right intention, right effort, right concentration. Mindfulness is a component in there. So it's, yeah, it's very important, but it's, it's supported by all the other factors. And right view which we'll talk a little bit more in detail. <clears throat> we have to hold the right view and what we're, why are we doing this? You know, what, why are we using mindfulness? Last time I checked, there's 26,000 books with the word mindfulness on Amazon. Yeah? So there's everything, right? 
mindful hiking, mindful cooking, like mindful golf. That's a big one, mindful hiking, uh, being mindful of mindfulness. Um, so, but why, why are we doing it? And this is important too, because it's about the longevity of the practice. Yeah, if we're doing it just for, you know, stress relief or something like that, it's no problem. It's no problem with that. But the richness might not be there, yeah? When we don't get that, maybe, oh, we're still stressed out, mindfulness is not working, throw it out, yeah? Um, so the Eightfold Path starts out with right view, like right view, and then right intention, and then we get into the sila practices of right speech, right livelihood, uh, and then move into right concentration, right mindfulness, right effort, I forgot one, right effort. So I'm going to read a little bit about right, uh, right intention. It's also called right resolve. This is more from the classical texts. Right resolve can also be known as right thought, right intention, or right aspiration. In this factor, the practitioner resolves to leave home, renounce the worldly life, and dedicate himself to a spiritual pursuit. Okay, we're not going to do that, but <laughs> but we came here tonight, which is good. And what is right resolve? Being resolved on renunciation, on freedom from ill will, on harmlessness. This is called right resolve. Like right view, this factor has two levels. At the mundane level, the resolve includes being harm harmless and refraining from ill will to any being, as this accrues karma and leads to rebirth. At the super mundane level, the factor includes a resolve to consider everything and everyone as impermanent, a source of suffering, and without a self. So I'll read that last piece one more time. So they're talking about relative and ultimate truth, the super mundane and super mundane. On a relative level, why do we do things? This is more of like the worldly concerns, like why would we do something? And the super mundane is ultimate truth. Like why would we do something on the ultimate level, right? On the Buddhas don't really talk about soul, but at soul level, yeah? Super mundane level, the factor includes a resolve to consider everything and everyone as impermanent, a source of suffering, which we'll get into that one, and without a self, right? So this is basically emptiness, right? When we're looking at, at everything as impermanent, um, interdependent, like the source of suffering, which comes from attachment. So everything is a source of suffering only if we are trying to get something out of it and consider it, um, have attachment or aversion to it, yeah? And without a self. So this is a without a self uh, arising from its own side without imputation, yeah? Which is a whole deep, really deep subject in and of itself, yeah? But how we impute labels onto it, but there's no thing in the thing, yeah? So we impute car onto a car, but there's no car in the car, right? It's a collection of parts. It functions a certain way. We slap a label on that functionality, and there you go. It exists like that, but not really much more than that, right? 
Someone else might not look at it in the same way we do, so it's not existing from its own side as a car. We have to impute car on top of the car. But then when the car stops working, that functionality leaves, but, and we think, oh, this is a car, it needs to do this, then that's suffering. That's the attachment part, because the functionality broke, so now it's broke, and now we're bummed. Yeah, that's the attachment part, yeah? And of course, it's impermanent, so when we look at it like this, car is only functioning like a car for a certain amount of time. So again, when car breaks, we think, what are you doing? You're supposed to last forever. You're not supposed to break. Because we love things to stay just like that. We like them to stay with our imputation. Car. And a car does this. Yeah? So it's like that. But this is the thing about the motivation piece. Is that there needs to be some kind of experiential hit to find that as a motivating factor. Yeah? So this is about, this is right intention. This is why we're doing the practice. This is very, very important. This is our, this is our motivation for the practice. If you're going to go on a diet, you're doing it to what? Lose weight, <coughs> right? Or feel better, whatever it is, right? It's very concrete, yeah? You know why you're doing it, yeah? If you come into an MBSR class, like a mindfulness-based stress reduction class, and you have anxiety. You say, I'm going to take this class because I heard it works for anxiety. It's very concrete. Again, like that. So if you're looking at meditation practice and say, well, I'm doing this so um, I can nurture and, and nourish my super mundane intention to see all things as impermanent, <laughs> interdependent, and empty of a permanent self. You might... You might not wake up and say that. <laughs> you see, because there has to be an experiential hit. So it's kind of a catch-22. Like, we need to jump into it to taste that. We need to have that motivation to taste that. But then we need to taste that for the motivation. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah? So Because we live so much on the desire realm and desire mind. Yeah? That it's very difficult... Because we have like this, this homo sapien, this, this body that needs stuff. And it's important stuff that it needs. It needs things like food. It needs comfort. It needs pleasure. It needs togetherness. Yeah? And these are very, very wholesome needs. Yeah? But then we attach our psyche to those needs. So we know we say, my body. Yeah? My body. Something possesses a body. Yeah, my body. But then, if the body gets hungry, we say, I'm hungry. It's quite odd. Because a moment ago, you owned a body. My body. Yeah? Like my shoes. If my shoes get dirty, I don't say, I'm dirty. My shoes are dirty. You see? So, we attach, we self-identify self-identify, yeah, with body, with thoughts and emotions too, because self-identify, yeah. So when we do things, when we say we're doing it for myself, we're actually doing it for some, the body a lot of times, yeah, what the body needs, what the body wants. And this, this self, yeah, the self that we build up that's impermanent, 
but we like it to be concrete. We're doing it for that self. So there's two things to take care of, our self and our non-self. We love to take care of the self. Does that make sense? Like the egoic mind, we, we like to take care of the egoic mind, the egoic concept. So this is very important. Yeah. So there's a part of us that when we're here, we're here for like the spiritual materialism because it's cool to meditate. We know it's cool. <laughs> um, well, it might be th certain things. Yeah, it might be togetherness, or it might be um, it might be the coolness, or it might be because you like yoga pants, or it might be because <laughs> Buddha statues are cool, or whatever. You know, so people come for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, on the mundane level. But to make it sustainable, to make the practice sustainable, how do we get to the point of doing it for this? this tasting, what they call the nectar. Really the nectar. Yeah. This, this is what's going to get us from making the meditation something that we have to do to making meditation something that we want to do when we taste the nectar of it. Yeah. Right. Uh, sometimes meditation can be like exercise. It can be like a diet. It can be something that you know you should do. It feels good when you do it, but it's hard to do. Yeah? It can fit in that category, and it can stay there for a very long time. You know, but if you ever get on a roll with something, if you ever, you know, you're doing a diet or an exercise program, or maybe learning about a certain subject or a new hobby, and you do it with full force long enough to where you go over that hump, and you're like, Oh man, I, I want to do it. I cannot wait to do it. Even if it's exercise where in the beginning it was very difficult to bring yourself to do it, now you can't wait to do it. Yeah, we've all had that. That's what we're looking for. That's the taste. Yeah. That's something deeper that's motivating us, you know. So more um, of, of a Tibetan motivation is may I do this to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Yeah, it's very altruistic. Yeah? For the benefit of all beings. May I attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. And the, the, the concept there is that until we have actually seen truth, then obviously we can't help others. If we can't free ourselves, yeah, then we really can't free other beings. Yeah? So setting this motivation. And so I think it's really important to look at desire mind. And this is really interesting because even thinking about what we desire, we think brings us happiness. Now I know I, know I have done this. I've spent hours and hours of meditation just daydreaming on stuff that I like. Right? How many of you have daydreamed about something you like in meditation? And enjoyed it. Just thought, like, I, I'm having a great time. You know, I'm having a blast. Anything except sitting here in the moment, being with what is in the moment. <laughs> right? Just fantasy. And so this is quite interesting, though, because if we really look and are mindful of fantasy, of desiring something that we don't have, or maybe we desire something that we will never have, that to us is pleasurable 
yet actually quite not. We, we, we kind of take the task to this. If we look at desire of mind, the mind and desire, we look that it's actually an agitation. So in meditation, we're looking at dullness and agitation. Yeah? When we have desire of mind, uh, so it was 4th of July, yeah? I live at the beach, near the beach. So it's just crazy, you know, crazy, crazy. And there's all these uh, young people <laughs> and a lot of desire of mind, you know, because it's like Bikini City and, you know, all this stuff. And, and you see the agitation. This, it's agitated it's agitated energy and I'm not saying this in a bad way but you see it's, it's like volatile yeah and um, outside my house I saw this in action you know, this, these are a bunch of guys the college age and a girl and she was yelling at I think her boyfriend and she was saying something about I don't know why you want to talk to her and then he said did you see how hot she was? She was super hot. Was, I think wow. not a bad, I mean, not just stop, but he was very intoxicated and he wanted to impress his buddies, you know. <laughs> but, you know, you see this, like, all this going on. So there's a lot of attachment and desire happening. Yeah. Very, like, gross example. Not a subtle example, very gross example. Subtle example is when we allow desire to rise in our minds and feel that kind of a satisfaction but with that satisfaction there's almost a sorrow in there that we're not able to grasp it able to get it there's maybe some frustration in there you know at the same time yeah so it becomes very subtle about about this this motivation and what we want and how we're going to get it yeah and and we see this because and remember like the buddha only taught one thing he taught 84,000 teachings that supported only one thing. And that's non-grasping. Non-grasping mind. So attachment, but non-grasping mind. And we see how if there's agitation, that means that there's something that the mind needs to grab onto. Right? It can't just let it be. Let it arise, let it abide, and let it go. Yeah? Now the opposite of that, if we feel into contentment, this is true equanimity, yeah? How about that moment of the day or in your life when you feel like you're done? There's nothing wanting. They liken this to after a really hard day's worth of work. You know, work really hard. Maybe, you know, use your physical body too. It's the end of the day. Maybe you just had a nice meal. And you like fall back on your bed and just be like, ah, oh, like job well done. Ah, oh, you see this? It's like this contentment. It's peace. Like not wanting even anything, yeah? Just like that. Like Adi Ashanti says, the only thing better, the only thing better than getting what you want is being happy when you don't. I love that. See, and that's that. That's that peace. Where is that happy when I don't? Where is that peace within us? And how can we contact that? And if we contact that, we want to abide there. Once we contact that, we don't want to leave that. Yeah? That becomes the motivation. That becomes the pole star home. Yeah? Like, oh, I tasted that. 
It's beyond the dualist, the, du the dualism. It's beyond the, the I have, I don't have, I want, you know, I, I got, I, you know, it's all of that. Yeah. Winning, losing, success, loss. It's beyond that. It's like, I'm happy just because. I'm content just because. Just like that. Yeah. So this is right intention. How could I how could I move to experience that instead of these very subtle grasp what the mind is subtly grasping towards? Even grasping towards a concept of, of enlightenment. You know? Forget who said it. Said is a Rinpoche that said the problem with the West is we want to be there for our own enlightenment. You know? So it's like the self wants to be there for its own enlightenment. And it loves that. Remember, the ego loves the shapeshift, does not want to be destroyed. But if it wants to be the enlightened version of self, no problem. <laughs> the ego has no problem being like enlightened Casey. No problem. Yeah? But annihilating the ego, it's going to really grasp, yeah? It's going to really... You're going to really feel that. When there's a dissolution of self in meditation, it's very tangible, yeah? Maybe we'll go into... Well, any, any questions. Maybe we'll just open it up to some questions first. So um, I have a question. Sure. What is what? What's an example of that experiential hit of it? Like, what does that look like? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you know, that's a that's the non-conceptual hit. So what we're talking about there is something experiential. So that's it's the hit of beyond concept, and beyond subject object. It's, I mean, like you're, <laughs> I mean, I'm resigned to the idea of I'm just going to do it like, like I do my exercise. And yeah. then, I mean, that's kind of how you have to approach it. You can't be, oh, you know, I have to do this because then I'll get that hit and then I'll really, you know, be good. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, there's, um, in the Tibetan schools, it's, it's, it's funny because the Galupa school, they love to talk about like the emptiness experience. And there's a saying that even though you can't understand it, the Galupas will try to try anyway, you know, mm -hmm. just try to conceptualize it. Um, and then on the other side of that, the Nyingma school, the completely opposite, right? The more you talk about it, the worse it is, mm -hmm. and you just have to experience it. Um, but I, I believe, personally, I'm in the middle where, you know, a little bit to get us get us going a little push but we always remember to drop the expectation at the beginning middle and end and just be yeah so the value of talking about that would be to to say that that is something that could happen that could deepen your practice yeah I think it's motivating you know and we need some types of we need a skill set too <clears throat> You know, we need to know how to do the practice. Um, I liken it to a runner's high. Like, how do you get a runner's high? Run. 
Mm-hmm. You cannot force a runner's high. It just comes up, and all you do, you just run. But you have to get out there and run, right? And there's mm-hmm. some you know technique in that and whatnot. So it's like that. We meditate, and we just meditate, just like you said. So so perfect. We just we just do it to do it, and that's another beautiful thing about about the intention. You see, with, with intention, when when we have right intention, the intention itself, we're done. That's it. That's all we have. That's all we have is intention. Everything else is totally out of control. Like Chogum Chupa said, enlightenment's an accident. Meditation makes us accident prone. <laughs> yeah? So it's an accident, but, but we control our intention. May I do this for the benefit of all beings? You know, so we work with that. We nurture that. This is one thing that my teacher, Venable Tenson Chogi, reminds me over and over and over again because I have attachment. Like, I want to do this, I want to do that for this reason, for that reason. It's not happening. Why is it not happening? I want it to happen sooner, this and that. She always says, What's your intention? That's it. You're done. Purify your intention stronger and stronger, and then interdependent, impermanent, empty. Yeah, that's it. I think one of the beautiful things is that even if you never taste the taste, um, the road on the way has improved your life anyway, like dropping expectation. Your life is going to be better for having dropped expectation, even if you don't make it to some pinnacle you have in your mind of taste or whatever. But the you do get the taste because... You're rewarded for this dropping of the expectation. It's just so freeing. Yeah. You open that cage a little more. Yeah, I think. Um, were you done? Or yeah. Um, yeah, like this taste. I love Garchan Rinpoche says, and I've said this before, but the, the very moment we liberate a thought, we're a Buddha. So this this taste isn't like a big, you know, chakra, crown chakra blast, <laughs> Kundalini's, you know. It, it's at the very moment. So this non-graspy mind, the Buddha taught, as a thought goes by, watch it. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's non-graspy mind where the rubber meets the road. Just keep doing that. But like Garchan Rinpoche was saying that, every time we liberate a thought, that very moment, you're a Buddha. And he says, this is very kind of un-Buddhist, like, but anyway, they usually don't talk like this, but he was saying, at that very moment, all beings feel it. All beings can feel it. That very moment, you liberate a thought. Because so you no, you're no longer self-identifying. Like It goes from infinite potentiality to finite. When we collapse on a thought, subject-object slams into each other. Like Autumn Tumpton says, the mind is a very difficult job. It creates a whole entire universe in every moment. Yeah? But the moment we liberate that one thought, we're in vastness. Yeah? So it... But it's short time, many times. So, so that those little those hits, that nectar, that nectar. We've all felt that nectar. We feel it every single day. But it's just like putting our toe in the water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we don't realize the full taste of it. Yeah. So we got to keep dipping the toe. But but notice. You know, I was doing a meditation one time, and it was a longer meditation. It was on, on New Year's. And we went around the room and people had some really good, some really positive um, fruit of their meditation. And one woman said, I didn't really feel anything. I said, well, no problem. 
it's all valid. I said, how's your, like, and we started talking. I said, how do you usually feel? Is your first time meditating? She says, no, my life is very chaotic. And she says, I'm a social worker, and I, have a, I work in inner city. It's a very difficult job. I have a, I have a son who's a, addicted to, to drugs. He's in very bad shape. And, and I said, tell me again about what you felt in this meditation. She's like, oh, just like nothing, really. And I said, well, how often, how often do you get that? <laughs> Oh yeah, never really. <laughs> yeah, and I thought she probably had the most profound meditation out of everybody who was maybe looking for this really, you know, top level. Um, but yeah, sometimes I think we just miss it, like boredom. Like it might look boring to us, peacefulness, because we're so we're so used to this very dynamic, you know, sorrow, success, pain, and all. That. Yeah, we need like bliss, you know. And it's like. But what about equanimity, which we see at the end of the path? Equanimity. Equanimity. Very middle path. Equanimity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, oh, it, the nectar's always here. It's not a big epiphany. And sorry if I made it sound like that. But it's just that, that little that taste within. You know, everything's subtle. And too, I think um, it just makes me think how it's so subtle, that one little little dip in the water that we are so busy looking beyond or looking somewhere else that we just miss it time after time. I know I do as I'm listening to what you're saying, thinking, hmm, yeah, having the experience of nothingness or not having the angst there even for a second and I miss it because I'm on to the next thing. Yeah, I think we're missing it every moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the act, the very act of seeking, the very act of seeking is lack consciousness. By seeking something, we're actually saying we don't have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the very act. Like Papaji said, well, throw away the map. You're at the top of the mountain. <laughs> like you're already there. Throw it away the map. Like, stop climbing, all that stuff. We look at all of this as just simply non-doing. That's the only thing they're asking of us, is not to do. And grasping onto a thought is a huge doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah? We're saying, what is it if we let it be? If we let everything be as it is, what's that? That's all it is. Simple non-doing which is sometimes the hardest thing. <laughs> Especially if you're, you know, you want cake or something. And <laughs> there's a big cake. <laughs> but that's it with the mind, yeah? Like, how hard is it? Because we're all thought addicts, you know? I, if your mind's like my mind, we're thought addicts. We love to chew on thoughts. Oh, yeah, it's a yummy thought. Or, yeah, I love to play with thoughts. <laughs> There's a, a line from Juan de la Cruz that is coming to me because of this, which is a poem, um, St. John of the Cross, Juan de la Cruz. Um, I'll never throw away my soul, only for something I don't know, that one may come on randomly. 
Mm-hmm. Just this beautiful sort of notion of there it is. Mm-hmm. At the fountain, I think he uses also images of the fountain, the flow of energy that you contact, and then it goes. And it seems so random when those mm-hmm. moments come. Yeah. So, anyway, just sharing because I wanted to. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So, every time I'm just thinking of like our interactions, their interactions with people or with people that um, really trigger our responses, like um, unconscious responses. Um, and, um, you know, then you become aware of your, let's say, you're interacting with someone, you get emotional response that's whatever, positive, negative, it's somewhere on the spectrum and far away from equanimity. And, um, you wanna, and you're aware that your mind is grasping, but, so it's, seems very challenging um, to navigate this, um, to have a non-grasping mind in situations that really trigger your emotional response. What do you do in those cases? Do you remove yourself and compose yourself first and then resume interaction? Or do you just hope to keep getting better and with time? How do you speed up that? Yeah, I was going to say, if you really get triggered, then you just go off on somebody, because you can't. <laughs> um, you know, because it's all where we're at. You know, that, that our flame of awareness can only burn up what it could burn up at the time. I told one person, I said, you know, I'm not enlightened enough to deal with you. I have to walk away. <laughs> I can't burn all that up. You know, our, our awareness is like a flame. So whatever we look at disappears with a non-judgmental, compassionate awareness. This fuel of compassion, it like melts things away. Non-judgment, just resting in awareness, can melt these things away. But it's, uh, this flame can burn up to small things. Yeah, You're sitting in meditation and, oh, I need to do this later. I need to get that done later. Yeah, You're just aware and burn it up. You liberate that thought. Yeah. Mindfulness is like a muscle, it gets stronger. So this gets stronger, and it burns that one up, yeah? But then something come along, and it's like a, a log. It snuffs out the flame of awareness, yeah? So we're building. We're building and mind training, training, training. This is why the best time to, med- to meditate and to really, really, really practice is when your life is good, mm-hmm. yeah? It's like praying before you need it. Yeah. yeah. It's like you get in a bad situation. Oh, please. Oh, yeah. Whatever you pray to, you know. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But it's like that too here. It's like if something is very strong, obviously you're not going to become the Dalai Lama like all of a sudden, you know, where he could watch 6,000 monasteries get burned and his friends get tortured for 19 years and he's still you know, globe trotting the world with a smile on his face, you know. So he's seen something on a different, very different level than us, right? But... We can, with time, little by little, you know, drip by drip, short time many times, drip by drip fills the cup. Drip by drip fills the cup, yeah. So it's really important, like when you're washing dishes, this is where the practice comes in a very uh, relative level. Washing dishes, wash the dishes, brush your teeth, brush your teeth. Actually, those are such 
amazing practices because then, oh, strong emotion coming. Now you now, when does it when does it self identify, or when can you let it let it pass? Yeah. So you're saying to, um, in moments that are easy, where we are having easy moments, to those are the best ones to build that muscle of um, mindfulness and um, non-grasping, and then when we are triggered in any situation, we're already there, essentially, yep. to not wait for the, those yeah. moments. Okay. You go to the to gym, you start with the lightweights, you go to heavier weights. <laughs> to realize that we're basically running this marathon all the time, and not when we get... Um, pushed, but that it's ongoing practice. Not, yeah. Yeah. Not like, cause we tend, yeah, right, because we do tend to forget when we're having those brushing yeah. teeth, doing dishes, mindless moments. Right. Okay. And then the family but, comes over, we're like, where's our mindfulness? <laughs> Why can't I love everybody? Yeah, and, and the heart practices. That's why daily meditations, a little bit of loving-kindness practice, a little bit of mindfulness practice every day, no matter what, starts to add up. Yeah. Any other questions or practice questions too? Learn things. I just want to make sure that I'm going to remember this correctly. So, um, you said in human interaction when we get triggered to use compassion for ourselves and for the other person. That's what I remembered from what you said. Would you add upon that or is this? Sure. I think the best thing to remember in in difficult situations is a triangle of awareness. So this is very important, is that the entirety of the external world, all external phenomena, is processed inwardly only in three different ways. Thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all of those are uh, just arising, abiding, and falling away. And this is where all of our attachment comes, not from anything external, but from holding on to our internal thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. So the first thing to do is forget about the external source. Because this is where we want to go towards, yeah? But that external source is merely a match. But all all of the uh, material to burn is within you, yeah? And that's what, and we used to call it a trigger, yeah? So it triggers something, but that's within you. So the, on our workbench has nothing to do with what's outside. The workbench is, okay, now something's triggered. doesn't really matter where it's from, yeah? Mm-hmm. This is what we have to take care of. Thoughts, emotions, body sensations. So it's like divide and conquer, Right? Unchecked, they rock and roll, right? Mm-hmm. You start out with somebody, you know, like, you, oh, you, like, slam your hand or something like that. Ouch, right? Body sensation. A kind of anger, right? And then, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this happened, yeah? 
thoughts. Most of the time, an emotion will come with a thought bundle. Sadness arises. Oh, it's because of so-and-so, or I lost this, or this and that, yeah? So, watch those. Watch the emotion. Remember, we have human nature. Thoughts have nature too. Emotions have nature too. Body sensations have nature too. We have to understand the nature of all of those things. Yeah? Thoughts, nature, it's the nature of a thought to arise from nowhere, abide, and go away. Yeah? It's its nature. Unless, what? We mess around with it, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So this is very good news. This is very good news because that means that it's up to us. Yeah? And if we're suffering, for sure, that means you're believing a thought. That's what suffering equates, right? Pain times resistance equals suffering. That resistance part, that's ours. Yeah? So an emotion arises. Somebody triggers something. An emotion arises. No problem. It's an emotion. Nobody says that that's anything wrong with that emotion. We don't even need to label that emotion anything. Yeah? Fear, anger, whatever. Hello, dear one, how are you? No problem. That thought, I really don't like this person. <laughs> it's just a thought. Yeah? And it's from that homo sapien thing too, you know? Fight, fight or freeze. Trying to protect the self. Yeah? It needs to survive. And that's okay. That's good. You could even, you could even um, think fight, flight, or freeze. Think anger. I know you're trying to protect me. Think anxiety. I know you're trying to protect me. Yeah? Hello, how are you? Yeah. But remember too, it's passing. It's impermanent. And by actually just noticing this, you're resting in something different. And this is the really important piece, is that we're usually marinating 24-7 in thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. Yeah, We marinate in that stuff, and we leap one moment to another. We leap from one thought, one emotion, leaping around. But the very moment you say, hello, anger, how are you? You're resting in awareness. That which is looking at anger is not angry. Yeah, but you have to do it, yeah? Right. To, feel, to feel that. Oh, anger is arising within my consciousness, within awareness itself. Anger is arising. And in that moment that you're resting like this, you're not your anger. In the very moment we self-identify with anger, we've all lost it. I've definitely lost it. Where there's no separation between me and anger. I just lose it. I'm ang I am anger, yeah? Yeah. So practicing that, and we are practicing that every single moment of meditation, practicing that, we're practicing what it's like to rest in that something other. Yeah? So noticing it and then calling it out removes that part of the self the, that we identify as self. It's there. It's out here. It's not me. Yeah, right. just noted. Yeah, noting. It's like the noting practice in meditation when we note, oh, rehearsing, rehashing. 
planning mind, you know, and bringing yourself back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same, same thing. And for me, um, with, with intense emotion, um, <clears throat> I focus on where in the body they are residing. Mm-hmm. So I make a distinction between the, the, the talk, what I'm saying about the feeling, mm-hmm. and where it's sitting in the body. And that's been a profound practice for me because um, that means I'm having body sensations associated with fear, mm-hmm. and I don't have to push it away. I can be present to it mm-hmm. and allow it. Uh, so there's this great accepting of where it is and how it's playing, and, and then it, it thins out mm-hmm. and turns into energy that's easier or not. I mean, it's not, with great pain, it can, it can be there a while. But So for me, there's, a, there's physical but there's also emotional body experience, mm-hmm. and that's how I focus on it mindfully, mm-hmm. is, is to be, and I have, I do label it, but I label mm-hmm. it a body sensation mm-hmm. associated with fear. Yeah, yeah like wonderful. That, so I find yeah, that helpful, because it's not out there, it's in, you know, yeah. and I know where the centers are in mm-hmm. different places that happen for me. I, I feel tears here, here, freedom, she calls it, an emotional freedom, because emotions rest in the body. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just reminded me of that. So often it's like, I am so stressed because I have this, all this stuff I have to do, stuff I have to do, and it, it gets all in my head. But if I can stop to think about it, I feel it in here. But noting it, acknowledging that, oh, my neck is really tight, it's really sore. And being with that, well, okay, so 30 seconds, and just noticing. And I think the first time I started, and I, I used to practice this, I forgot about it, <laughs> um, with my feet on the floor, just could feel the feet on the floor, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And I, well, why am I not experiencing more? That doesn't release emotions, but it was a place to start. Like with beginner's mind, like, well, place to start. And don't beat yourself all up because that's what I tend to do. Oh, well, you're not doing it right, or you're not feeling them. Mm-hmm. Then you should be feeling mm-hmm. The commentary. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Good yeah, so we see with, mm-hmm. with both of those practices this turning inward, yeah? Mm-hmm. To be able to look at those thoughts, emotions, and body sensations mm-hmm. and to see their nature. What's the nature of an emotion? Even look at the texture, the size. How much is a thought wave? How much does it feel like a thought wave? 
Yeah, but really didn't investigate. So we see this is very counterintuitive, very different, because usually it's about somebody, something, mm -hmm. or a situation. It's out there, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and we hopefully, well, <laughs> we've, we've experienced this, but we, we don't learn. I don't learn. We try to change everything. Like, we try to line it up, you know what I mean? Like, fix this, fix this. But again, as Pema Chodron says, lean into the sharp points, you know, lean in this way. Yeah, this is how, what we need to process. Yeah, so when, it doesn't matter what, those, what comes at us, yeah, those triggers can be softened. They're not, there's nothing to land. It's like uh, a tennis match or something. Somebody hits a ball, you know, if you hit it back, now you're in a game. Yeah, but if you just let the ball go by, no problem. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's nothing there's nothing to land. Yeah, just cuz like, oh, okay. No problem. So maybe let's just um spend the next few minutes um, a little closing meditation. So maybe turning inwards towards your your intention, your motivation. Maybe reflecting on the words of all the saints and sages of the past. No matter what religion or time frame. They've all expressed this inner peace. And that we all have it. And it's attainable for each and every one of us. Is Buddha nature. Is Christ consciousness. And then maybe reflecting in a very real way that none of us are free until all beings are free. 
and that ultimately it doesn't make much sense to just do this for ourselves. So maybe see if we can expand this intention to include all beings. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free from suffering. Just like I want to be happy and free from suffering. dedicating the merit of our time together tonight, speaking of all beings, just allowing the intention of all the goodness, all the insights, wisdom, compassion, anything wholesome that we've accumulated together may be for the benefit of not only our own enlightenment, but for all beings. Thinking of all the people that do not have access to this type of teaching or even coming and sitting in peace. They're just trying to survive. But this is a luxury. May it go out to them all of our brothers and sisters that cannot make it. Just listen to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.